and welcome to the Larb Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for Larb, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-hosts, Larb's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and Larb's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hey, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi, guys. And this week, we're speaking with Carla Cornejo Villavicencio about her new book, The Undocumented Americans, which I really, really loved. This was a great kind of unclassifiable book in some ways, I thought, like not exactly one thing or another, and certainly not exactly a piece of investigative journalism, but more just a work of curiosity of just talking to people about their lives and um, talking to people, you know, who are living here without papers about what that's like and in a bunch of different parts of the country. Something you guys might not know is that I was actually undocumented for two years. My mother and I were undocumented. I didn't know that, Medea. And I've known you for years. I didn't know that part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. We we didn't have a legal status here, but I was a dumb little kid. And so whenever any official person sort of asked when we got to the States, I would say 94. And then my mom would have to be like, you can't say 94. You have to say 96. This was after when we did get legal status in 96. So yeah, it's kind of scary. Kind of scary. Gotta say. (laughs) Just as, I mean, to say the least, we can get more into it, but I think we should let Carla's book sort of dive us into the various stories of other undocumented people. All right, let's listen to it. Great. We're joined today remotely by writer Carla Cornejo Villavicencio. She's the author of the critically acclaimed book, The Undocumented Americans, praised by many and by us as well as one of the finest books of the year and a finalist for the National Book Award in nonfiction. Carla has also written on immigration, music, beauty, and mental illness for The New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Republic, Elle, Vogue, N Plus One, New Inquiry, and many other publications. The Undocumented Americans is a memoir as well as a piece of investigative journalism. Carla discusses her own experience as an undocumented person and dives into the lives of undocumented people all over the country, moving from Staten Island, a place I have never been to, so I'm eager to hear all about it, to Miami, to Flint, Michigan. Carla, congratulations on the book and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Carla, in the introduction to this book, you write that the day after Trump was elected, basically, you realized you had to write it. But at the same time in the book, you point out that a lot of Obama's policies towards immigrants weren't exactly perfect either. So I wonder what exactly about Trump's election really galvanized you and why you felt that was the time to write this book. During parts of Obama's presidency, I was not really doing well myself. I was in graduate school and DACA had passed. And so that was sort of marked the beginning of my ability to earn money for my writing in sort of a regular way. And I was in doing my PhD at Yale and had realized for the first time that what I had considered to be sort of a romantic relationship with mental illness because I was an artist was not. And I sought treatment at you know the student health center here at Yale. And what happened is what has happened with a lot of students of color that have gone to a lot of their university mental health clinics or centers is that 
they haven't been asked about trauma or about migration or about poverty or about, you know, their family dynamics. They're sort of sedated because the schools are afraid of suicide. And so I was just put on a steady rotation of antipsychotics. And I don't remember a lot of my 20s. And so while all of this stuff was happening and it was affecting me, I was writing about other things. And I was writing about immigration sort of in an oblique way. I was starting to do better and have the clarity of mind. I was on a really clean antipsychotic that sort of allowed me to think clearly by that point. So one of the answers is I had my health back. And the other answer is that Trump had won partly because of really racist, xenophobic rhetoric, which was not part of why Obama had won. So it, the brazenness of the rhetoric is something that was also part of why I wrote it. So this book is partly about your experience. And as you just said, you know, many of when you go see someone about particular mental problems that you might be having, you're not asked about the trauma or about migration. Can you tell us how you started talking about that and what made you start talking about it? One of the difficult things it seems like is to even bring that conversation to the public and to the fore. I think one of the things is that I wouldn't have been able to do it like while I was in, in the real thick of it where I didn't understand what was happening. And so there are moments right now where I, there are moments I have good days and I have bad days and there are moments where I am in the thick of it in some way, but I'm aware of what's happening and I have skills to manage my moods or I have a psychiatrist who was really talented or I have therapies like DBT that really work for me. And also I'm able to speak about it because I am both in my life, I'm a very high functioning person who works really hard on my mental health. When I see myself starting to slip, I know what those signs are and I know what to do. And that's taken me a really long time to get here. It's taken me 10 years. And so I feel like I can be open about it because I'm not glamorizing it. I'm not romanticizing it. And I no longer associate it with the kind of artistic genius or femaleness the way that I did when I was in my early 20s. And people encourage that, like professors encourage that when I would like was clearly not doing well and was comparing myself to Robert Lowell and writing articles about, I remember I, I pitched an article on the Golden Gate Bridge and it was a long piece and it was accepted. And it was, I read it the other day and I thought, what is this if not like a manifesto about the moral right to commit suicide? And it was clearly written by an unwell person, even though it was really beautiful and it was really smart. And I don't feel that way anymore. And I think that a lot of people have just really bought this myth that you could be really smart and really tortured and really, you know, in a lot of pain and that that's okay so long as you're producing beautiful art. And so in the place where I am now, I, I don't do that. If I'm not doing well, I don't consider myself a, something to be consumed. I just see myself as sort of like a better role model. I wouldn't have been able to speak so openly about it then. I also think that we have like better role models. Honestly, I really look up to like Selena Gomez, who is a pop singer, who has been open about her mental health struggles. And when she doesn't feel well, 
she just leaves social media and takes care of herself and speaks openly about it. So I think the culture has changed too, where you see these like successful, really self-assured people who are just speaking very openly about their mental illness. So I thought it was not even a question that that would be a part of the way that I told my own story. And you write in the book that, you know, you visit all these different communities of people, and some of them are people who were second responders for 9-11 and who saw awful things and who worked under just really taxing conditions and who all subsequently got sick. And they're support groups for these people. But at the same time, mental illness, you write, in immigrant communities is sometimes looked down upon as a sign of weakness. And yet so many people you write about have like very harrowing stories or things that I think in any other context we would just assume would result in trauma. That the experiences alone of being separated from family, of coming so close to death, just in any other context immediately would be assumed as kind of like, okay, well, yes, this will result in traumatic experience. So I just wonder about navigating that in the people you were interviewing and how much you wanted to push and how much you wanted to kind of give them space to come to certain realizations on their own? Or how did you talk about that with the people that you wrote about? I think there's just like a really lazy way of talking about the Latinx community, often by Latinx people that we rely on as sort of like mainstream white culture to tell us about the Latinx community, where they just talk endlessly about the stigma about mental health. And I think so much of it has to do with language, right? It's like there are celebrities we look to to talk to us about the culture of mental health in the community. And it's like, how long has it been since you've actually been like out here in these streets hearing how people talk about mental health? So it's like people use the word depressed. People use the word anxious. People might not have an understanding of what PTSD is, but I found success when I talk to people who, it's not like we're such bootstrappy people that we are like allergic to the idea that we might not be strong. It's more of like in the undocumented community, there's a lot of people who don't have very high levels of formal education. So when you say like, this person has PTSD, they might have certain associations with that from what they've seen in movies, from what they've seen in TV shows. And those are not positive associations. You know, if you talk about a panic attack, a panic attack can be very quiet. I could be having a panic attack right now, but in movies, it's seen as like this fucking hysterical thing and they don't want an association with that. And that makes sense. And I found it, you know, when I was talking to my subjects, one, I described my symptoms and I made it clear that even I, who again am like successful, I look great, I have a glowing skin, I take medications every single day. I often take very similar medications to the kind they take. And you describe things as sort of like, I don't ask, do you self-medicate because you've experienced so much trauma? I ask, you know, like, do you find that in order to go to sleep, you need to have like a glass of wine or maybe more than a glass of wine? Do you find that you have to do this every night? Because I do, because sometimes I have a lot of nightmares and I find that I, for a while I needed 
to drink or to take like sleeping pills just to quiet down the nightmares. And then they talk about the nightmares. And then I can say, you know, this is trauma that a lot of people have from their crossings or from their time here. And so I think it's lazy to say that there's like a stigma about mental illness in the Latinx community. There's a stigma about mental illness everywhere in every culture across all societies. But if you just talk to people about what they're feeling and how they cope with it, they'll admit that they have feelings that don't feel good, that are a result of bad experiences, and then they have coping mechanisms that aren't healthy. And they will be open to that, especially if you commiserate with them. I want to talk, I mean, a little bit about your childhood that you discuss in the book. Part of that is I'm an immigrant. I grew up in Queens. And reading the part where you talk about growing up in Queens, I was like, oh, shit, this is the first time, this is kind of maybe the first time that I've kind of read something that felt close to kind of what it felt like to be a kid who speaks another language, who's also surrounded by other kids who speak other languages, where literally almost everybody is an immigrant. And there is like isolation in that, but then there's like some kind of, there's also a community in it. And you were separated from your parents for quite a long time. I just want to hear you talk a little bit about that experience that you had as a child. And I mean, what I remember being as a child is like just sheer terror from most of, most of you know, being a kid. I thought it was completely terrible. But what do you remember of that? And what are your memories of growing up? Was your terror family related or Queens related? Probably both. Um, <laughs> but I think, well, I do think a part of the immigrant experience when you were a kid, I was like seven or eight, is that you have no control, right? You have no, there's no room for you to ask really anything or to demand anything. And who you're with is decided by who you're traveling with and who's allowed to stay and who's allowed to go or who has to go and who has the right paperwork and who doesn't. And I think as an adult, you experience that in certain ways. And then as a kid, you experience it in others because you have a sense that like, oh, not even my parents are really in control of this. This is much bigger even than they are. So it's a particular kind of way to be a kid, I think, where you, you're never quite feeling like you have any say in what's going on, but nor does your family. Yeah. I mean, I loved growing up first in Brooklyn, then in Queens. I am so protective of my neighborhoods. When I go back, I haven't been back since lockdown, but when I go back, I am so mean to gentrifiers. <laughs> you know, I like, there's so many white people in my neighborhood, but they're Eastern European. I know the artsy kids who just moved in and who are driving up the rents and kicking us all out. And so I'm, I mean to them and I will forever be mean to them. And I just don't have the capital or the policy influence or anything available to me to reverse what's happening in our neighborhoods. So the least I can do is just scowl and say, I hate your tote bag. So Queens is, here's the thing. I felt a lot of control as a child, actually, because I immediately became aware that I, that my parents didn't have control. And so it became my responsibility to change the world for them. And so it's sort of strange. I think New York made it seem like everything was possible for me. Like, you know, I went to the Met, I went to the village after high school, and I would just, I knew all of these stories of, of old New York, 
and I never lost the romanticism of, you know, what the city had meant for some people and what could mean for me. And what the people that I had admired were like punks in New York and also were con men. You know, it was like Jay Gatsby. It was bootleggers. I loved the Kennedys as a kid. And part of what I loved the Kennedys, I loved Camelot, was because, I mean, they became the old money family, the most American family, because they were bootleggers. And as someone who was undocumented and called an illegal alien, I just reveled in the fact that I was not supposed to be here. And that just made me punk, even though I was a goody two shoes and even though I got all of the scores and everything. So for me, I just, New York represented unlimited possibilities for me. And so it was my partner and I always wonder because my partner is from a rural area in Pennsylvania. And I know a lot of my colleagues in the writing world are from all over the United States, but I just don't think I would have even thought I could become a writer unless I had been in New York. And I used to come home from Harvard on the Chinatown bus like every other weekend. And I just would, I used to just play New York centered songs the minute I knew we were about to see the skyline at night. And it just really just fed me the belief that I could do anything I I wanted to. And I have done most of what I have wanted to do, except make enough money to retire my parents. So I'm really grateful that my parents chose New York. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Carla Cornejo Villavicencio about her new book, The Undocumented Americans. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Alex Ross on the line with us today. Alex is the music critic at The New Yorker, and his new book is called Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music. And Alex is here to give us a book recommendation. Alex, what book are you going to recommend? Uh, I would recommend uh, Rick Perlstein's Reaganland, which I just finished reading, which I picked up at uh, Skylight Books uh, not uh, long ago. And although it's a very big, very heavy book, I I sort of couldn't put it down and, and went through it in just a few days. And and I think, you know, I I was born in 1968, um, the mm-hmm. late 70s, which is, the book is actually not about Reagan's presidency. It's really about Carter's presidency, but it's also about the, the rise uh, of Reagan and, and the roots of his triumph in 1980. And, you know, I was a, a kid in this period beginning to become aware of politics, you know, so I, mm. I knew all these names, you know, and, and sort of Billy Carter and, and Bert Lance and Casper Weinberger and, and, you know, so it was all familiar, but I did not know the depth of the political history um, and, and still had not caught up with, with a lot of the, the complexity of the story uh, that he tells. So I found it just an incredibly rich um, education um, as well as sort of this, this strange <laughs> uh, sort of deja vu of, of my own kind of you know, early awareness of politics. What inspired you to um, learn a little bit more about the Reagan years or, and prior to them? Uh, well, I think it was just, you know, having grown up in this period, I just sort of mm-hmm. wanted to to just experience it more deeply. Um, and, you know, there there is a sense in the book in which, you know, he is talking about 
how it was that the, the right and the and the religious right became so powerful in our politics, and also how the the Democratic Party uh, fell away from its old commitment to uh, sort of really strong leftist convictions and the and the spirit of the New Deal, and, and how it moved toward neoliberalism and, and uh, uh, sort of this this kind of you know triangulated sort of middle ground centrism, and that was really what was happening during the the Carter administration. It was a little bit of a, it made me a little downcast because I had this personal fondness for for Carter and still mm-hmm. do. I actually met him when he oh. was uh, when I was a kid because he came to my neighborhood. Amy Carter was playing a little violin recital um, at the church, <laughs> right, very very near our house, and so um, I went. And somehow I ended up standing around sort of inside the church and suddenly I was in this little lobby area kind of reception room and there was like three people three other people in the room one of them was the president and then mm-hmm. probably two secret service guys um and there was like a, a a sort of a food table um and the president kind of pointed to the brownies and said to me do you want a brownie and i sort of had this sense of of warmth from him you know just how kids can sort of pick up he just oh, seemed like yeah. a, a warm lovely guy and so i've always had this kind of fondness for for carter but you know i have to say the carter in this book is a very ambiguous uh, uh, figure in terms of you know his his politics, and there's yeah. also sort of deep problems in terms of how he managed his uh, administration and, and how he performed as a politician. So so it's a, a bit of a, a, a deflation uh, <laughs> of my kind of childhood uh, uh, admiration for Carter, but um, but you know the the real villain of the book is Reagan. So so there's uh, not too much confusion on that score. So, Alex, what's the name of the book again and the author? Yeah, it's uh, Reaganland uh, by Rick Perlstein. Um, and it's, you know, uh, pretty close to uh, a thousand pages long, but I found it riveting. Just page after page, extraordinary cast of characters, uh, extraordinarily detailed research, and really powerful kind of, it feels, complete uh, psychological portraits of of these major figures, uh, Carter and Reagan uh, above all. So it's sort of certain to be, I think, one of my favorite books of the year. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. We've been talking to Alex Ross. His latest book is Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Carla Cornejo Villavicencio about her new book, The Undocumented Americans. I wanted to ask about, you know, the way that you started to organize and write the book. Because it seems like the, the mandate that you have in the book is to tell the truth, to tell the truth about people and experience, but that there's there's not necessarily like a larger narrative organizing principle than that. So that seems like kind of daunting. You know, you do, you do it so well and, and it kind of moved pretty seamlessly from place to place. Um, but how did you then decide, okay, how, here's how this will be a book, all these disparate people and experience um, and, and start putting it together. What was the organizing principle for you? Oh boy, that is, um, that's my partner, Talia Zamak-Burson, uh, my first and best editor who created a chronology for me. I can't think chronologically. And so I just wrote the way that I think, which is sort of thematically and I would say rhythmically. 
and and then I'd print them out, and then my partner. What would happen is we'd print them out, and then my partner would read it. She really isn't allowed to give me line edits, or there will be fights, because I just go like, "Step, you're speaking to a very stable genius, right?" And then, um, but what she will do is she'll give me an outline, and and then I have to fit my write my the, the text into the outline, which will contain both chronology of like how, like the order in which things happen, but also the order in which ideas make sense and how they should follow one another. And then once I do that, I print out the chapters and then I cut out all of the paragraphs and then I put them on the floor and then I rearrange them in the order in which they belong, which is a trick that I picked up from Nabokov since that's, I mean, he, he wrote on these index cards famously and Vera is the one who ar- arranged them in the order in which they belonged. And so um, I do believe that, you know, I can, I need, I need to see them visually on the floor like that. And then I, and then I read, the, read them in the order and then I um, retype it. Oh, sorry to interrupt, but how about the places you visited um, or the, you know, the, the cities that you went to the, and returned to, you know, um, what was the, what was your kind of organizing principle there about the people that you were going to report on? Yeah, there was not much thought behind that other than um, there were places where I didn't feel safe flying to. And there were some stories that, for instance, I wanted to do a piece that was um, on the West Coast, but that specific story would have would have been impossible to anonymize the subjects because it was such a specific story um, that people would have just Googled some details and would have found the people. So I had to kill some stories in which I wouldn't have been able to anonymize the subjects. So I, I followed some leads on ideas that I had, stories that I had. I had to make sure that I was able to anonymize some of the subjects or the subjects had been reported on so widely that like it was fine to take a new spin on it. And, you know, and then I spoke to people and uh, people who had a good, we had a good connection. What's interesting though is that I wasn't in pursuit of like these bombastic characters or stories. Like nothing really happens in the book. It's just like really slow uh, character sketches. And so I just got to know random people. And so I would contact organizations or organizers and say like, I, you know, I want to talk to people about healthcare in Miami. And they'd be like, oh, these are some nice ladies you might like to meet. And we hit it off and I would just get to know them. And because I wasn't in pursuit of like some hot trauma, um, I was just able to do these character sketches of the ladies that I grew to care about. You also write about your family and your parents. You also write about how you don't want to write about your your mom or that you don't really write about your mom. What's your relationships in in terms of writing about yourself and your family versus writing about the people you meet? Um, I don't want to write about my family anymore. (laughs) Okay. And... um, and I do want to keep writing about undocumented people mm-hmm. um, in the future. So I think um, 
I think that's my answer. I think I treated them the same way, which was with uh, brutal honesty and uh, empathy. You know, they're they're people. That's how I think of I think of everyone as a character, which enables me to have great empathy. So if you think about something, if you think about the character of my father in the book and the way that I end the book, um, I'm able to understand him because I'm able to understand the circumstances around his life that have led to this point. He's a, you know, he's a figure like Anna Karenina. And so I'm able to understand that and contextualize that when I'm writing about him. Does that mean that I don't feel his failures as a father? No. And so I um, do feel the emotional crash after I write about my family because it's a, it's a strain to think of them as characters and not feel bruised by um, contextualizing their failures. And so I just don't want to feel that kind of pain anymore. I have a piece that's coming out in a few weeks that is about my family. And um, I think that's the last one. What does your family think um, when they read your writing or, you know, how do, how do they, what do they think of the way that you represent them? They haven't read the book because uh, they don't read English, but I've translated some bits for, for them and they've read like essays before that I have either translated into Spanish or that they can read on their own because they're short enough and simple enough. My mom just doesn't like it when I humanize my father too much and don't see him as a straight up villain. I think my mom is the kind of person who would like count the number of words that I spent on my father and compare it to the number of words that I spend on her. Other than that, she doesn't care. This American Life ran a piece and they fact-checked with my mom. And she, you know, there were some questions they asked her about like my self-harm as a child and stuff like that. And she was totally um, just okay with it because she understands art, you know, she understands that it's art and that, and she understands what essays are because both of my parents are readers. And my mom has read Hillary Clinton's memoirs, I think maybe like four times each one. And so she like understands that sometimes you have to reveal uh, things that are deeply painful for you because you're trying to make a point or you're trying to reach a greater truth. My mom likes reading women's memoirs. And my father loves that I write about him because I'm mythologizing him. And he's someone who was treated like a hero for a really long time. And me being disappointed in him is not something that he has taken well. But the fact that I keep writing about him is something that soothes him. And um, I think he doesn't care what I say so long as he's still on my mind and still on my pen. But both of them are incredibly supportive of my writing and are incredibly supportive of me writing about my family. They know me and they know that I'm not exploitative. Again, they've, they've read my work when I've translated it. And um, I also run things by my brother, who is, you know, was born in Brooklyn, is, is American, 
and um, he he has to be okay with it because I don't reveal things about my parents other than what their relationship to me is as my parents. I don't reveal things about their private lives that are their story. I just talk about how they have been as my parents. That relationship is also shared by my brother. So when I talk about them as parents, I show those, you know, excerpts to my brother and I say, are you cool with this? Because it's his parents too. And it's our private stuff too. And he's been, he's always been like, this is exactly how it was. I'm wondering the best way to finish our conversation, partly because I, I think I would like listeners who, who might not have read the book to get some idea about the, the places that you visit and the people that you talk to. Um, so would you mind just talking about, let's say, one or two of the, of the people that you met in the course of writing the book that you feel like, you know, as you said, you, you got along with them, you spent time with them. So it might be hard to choose, but people that you've met during the course of writing the book that have really stayed with you. Maybe literally, in fact, but. Yeah, I think what makes my book special is not the fact. So here's the thing, like nothing really happens in my book. It's not a thriller, but there is, um, people seem to have a very strong reaction after reading my book where they feel like, uh, like they just took a drug or like they, they got a fever or something. And part of that is my voice. And part of it is that. Uh, I establish an intimacy with my subjects where you're sort of (laughs) seeing undocumented immigrants as real people um, in a way that we're we're not often granted. And by real people, I don't mean like, like he's such a good dad. Like he's like a real dad. Like there's one character who worked in cleanup after 9-11 on Ground Zero and yes, they were exploited and abused. But he also um, is working on a memoir and like just like puts work into his memoir. He has it like written. And he, um, we went to the zoo together and, and uh, he, he doesn't like zoos. He feels like the animals are trapped. And it's just this conversation, you know, he has really bad PTSD. He talks openly about his suicide attempts. And it's just this portrait of this man who still hasn't given up on this country and still has hopes and still has, you know, things he's passionate about. There's this other man who, and the reason why I'm not naming their names is because I know their real names, but for the book, I changed their names and I didn't memorize their pseudonyms. There's this other man who I met in Flint who was really quiet, like a hard, like he would be described as a hard worker and he's older. And um, the thing that I learned by talking to him is that he has two pit bulls that he, he rescued and he just treats them like, like I treat my dog and I call my dog, my litter mate, you know, he um, had also, you know, had tremendous difficulty accessing clean water in Flint um, like, you know, like Flint people did, but it was made even worse because he didn't have a state ID. So in some places, that's what they asked for, for clean water. Um, so when he got clean water, he would use those water bottles to give 
clean filtered water to his pipples, like like taking away from his own rations. Um, And uh, I mean, and that's, that's who he was. He was like, when you think of like pipple lover, rescuers, obsessies, like I think of Fiona Apple, but here's this undocumented guy in Flint who was like, Take, I mean, he was giving his rations to the dogs, you know? There's this other guy I met who, um, again, like, um, hard worker is how he would be described. But um, he told me about this chocolate factory or the sweets factory that he worked at. And the way he described it was so beautiful. It made me so hungry. It was so magical. It felt like very Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And the reason why he loved it so much is because he started at the bottom. He started like, you know, cleaning, janitorial work or something. And then he was such a good worker that the bosses promoted him. And he got to work with the sweets. And he learned how to make every kind of um, dessert. And it smelled so good. It was like a dream job for him. And then... um, they fired him because they decided to, the company was going to hire just American workers. And um, like the American bosses like often treat undocumented people like children with such with like condescension that they like gave him a certificate that they printed out saying that he was the best worker um, instead of a severance, instead of anything else. And he was like, they gave me a certificate. Um, so it's like these stories where it's like, People have quirks, people have things that that they'll be remembered by, you know? And, and what I hope people get from this book is when you see an undocumented person, like, don't call them an undocumented worker. Don't call them an undocumented laborer. They might be a really amazing, uh, really kind Pitbull rescuer. They might be like a person who is doing some, you know, Queen's Gambit pop and pill genius thing out there. They're just people, you know, and I think that's what makes my book so strong. I think my, uh, one of my favorite people that you wrote about was uh, Paloma, the, the mother who wasn't sure if she would, you know, given a second chance, want to have children again and who decided to take a vacation for herself and yeah, just who, who was really after her own kind of happiness and, and experience. And um, yeah, it didn't seem to portray her as some perfect person at all, but she was very charming. Yeah, she was crazy. I, I think the thing is she knew she was being interviewed. So you'd think she was going to like not reveal that like... <laughs> she she just sort of didn't want to be a mom and didn't want to be a grandma and then like decided to kind of like just leave it all and go to another country. And then I, when I met her, I was like, I do that. Like I do that, you know, because I'm also crazy. And if I had grown up in the same circumstances in the same decade, the same poverty with the same gender norms, I would have also ended up in a place where I was just like, you know what? Fuck it you know? And that doesn't make me a bad person, like, which is also how my book ends, where my dad is like, I'm in my mid-50s. I've been here since I was like 21, 22. I've given you my youth. I've given you my life. You are now grown. You're settled. You're doing okay. Can I, can I live for myself now? And I don't indict him for that. 
it's caused my brother and I some pain. But I say, you know, are, are they allowed to live for themselves now? And, um, and I think, I mean, I think that's, yeah, she was, she was crazy. I mean, also the detail how she refuses to divorce her husband, who she's been separated from for years because she wants to split his pension with the nanny that he had an affair with after she left him. I mean, like real housewives of Columbia type shit. Like, I can't believe she admitted that to me knowing I was writing a book. But that's just, I mean, that's just people. That's just people. I I wonder, you know, something I really got from the book um, is I think so often the narrative of, of immigrants is, oh, they'll come to our country, they'll steal from us, they'll take our jobs, all this stuff. And actually, you know, your book kind of catalogs the way that people are very much, you know, taken advantage of here and abused and um, how, you know, in a country that doesn't have great workers' laws, even for citizens, you know, that that people are just really treated so poorly often in, in the jobs that they take. I wonder if you see that, I mean, I know the book is not a policy book, but I wonder if you see that shifting at all, if you can imagine that this might change in this administration, if you can imagine that even just, you know, thinking of immigrants more as people, you know, with, with balls of complexity would make any difference just in regards to actual policy? No, no. I think um, it hasn't even made a difference in regards to literature. Books that are coming out in 2021 and 2022 after my book was acclaimed as like, this is the representation that we needed are still being shitty about immigrants and stuff because like, that's just who we are as a country and we need certain kinds of stories and we're used to certain kinds of stories. And I think, look, I think the generation that comes here and works, our parents, they are abused and they are underpaid and they are treated poorly. And that's not gonna change because there's always gonna be natural disasters. There's always going to be national disasters. And you're always going to need low wage labor from people who will uh, are willing to get sick and die in order to make money to put food on the table. So you're always going to need undocumented people, yeah? But also their children, I mean, as statistics show, are likelier than any other demographic in the United States to go to college and to get um, a graduate degree, I believe. And so we are probably taking jobs from Americans. And um, I think I certainly have. And I think that those things are not um, mutually exclusive. Like my parents deserve rights and they deserve the opportunity to not be turned away from hospitals or to be last in line to get the COVID vaccine. And I'm allowed to be an extraordinary writer and take prizes away from writers who are less good than I am. And if Americans are scared of that, they should just be better. I agree. Um, Americans, if you don't want us taking your jobs, get, get a little better. Well, thank you so much, Carla, for talking to us. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. We've been speaking with Carla Cornejo Villavicencio, author of The Undocumented Americans. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. 
subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the Lab Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. Thank you.